BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. Spring, is that you? Warmer temps mean new Albert styles. Meet the Superlight Collection, the lightest ever shoes from Allbirds, now in fresh colors. These must-have travel shoes have a lighter-than-air feel and barely their fit that made them the most packable shoes ever. That means more comfort and less baggage. Try the Superlight Tree Runner with a cushy foam midsole and breathable eucalyptus fiber upper. Plus, they're comfy right out of the box. So, what can you do in a Superlight shoe? What can't you do is the better question. And because they're super packable, the real question is, where are you taking them? Experience how Allbirds redefines comfort. Visit Allbirds.com and use code SUPER24 for a free pair of socks with a purchase of $48 or more. That's A-L-L-B-I-R-D-S.com code SUPER24. To the Barbell Medicine Pain and Rehab Podcast. I'm one of your co-hosts, Dr. Michael Ray. I'm a chiropractor here in Harrisonburg, Virginia. Also work remotely with Barbell Medicine's Pain and Rehab Department. I'm joined by my two usual co-hosts, Dr. Michael Amato, a physical therapist out of Boston, and Dr. Derek Miles, who is a physical therapist out of Cincinnati. How's it going, guys? How's it going, Mike? Cheers, Mike. Cheers, guys. We were just talking about our current uh, drink of choice, which for those who haven't kept up, uh, I have recently switched into IPAs, which I think shocks everyone. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I, I am actually liking them. And I think sours got me started. And I think I was talking to you, Amato, and you were, you were the one that was like, well, those are very similar to New England IPAs. And then I got like sucked into, or I guess they're like classified as that. Um, then I got sucked into IPAs. So here I am drinking a New England IPA. I'm glad to open the gateways for you. Thanks. <laughs> so this week. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, I was waiting for you guys to tell me what beer you were drinking this evening. But oh, yeah. I guess like, we're being, I was so. being rude and just assuming yeah. that they could see it. Um, drinking alone. Yeah. Well, I, I tried a new one today. Uh, Annie Oatley by Night Shift. It's a New England IPA with oats. I don't. I don't know if I taste the oats yet, but that's good. I'm drinking a local Cincinnati beer from Rheingeist Cloud Harvest Number Three. Um, I've never seen Number One, but apparently it's a seasonal harvest. Uh, I was just discussing before we came on that I, I feel like the evolution of beer consumption is very analogous to the rehab field because most people start out with drinking you know cheap domestic lagers 
and then move on to IPAs. And if you know anything about the brewing world, it starts getting a little bit more complicated in the actual process at that point. But then when you get into the hazies, you can start hiding some of the flaws in your brewing methods. And then once you get to stouts is the next kind of evolution. And there you're just chucking in a bunch of sweet stuff and roasted, and you can really hide things along the way. And then you evolve into sours where it's much more just sours as a style was originally a mess up. It's just, they figured out after the mess up, you put some fruit in it, it tastes good. And then everyone comes back eventually to lagers. And it almost is kind of the evolution through the rehab to where we start out with just move. And then it's like, well, let's complicate this. And then let's complicate it a little bit more. And then we have this big screw up epiphany and we hang out there for a little while. And then finally it's like, all right, simple is probably our best approach to this. I'm so like trying to figure out. Life. Yeah, I'm trying to figure out like where I am right now in that cycle. Well, I totally screwed it up from the start, so I don't even know where I fall at this point. You started off at sours. I started off started at stouts, stouts and porters. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's Just your personality to jump into the deep end of the pool, man. Yeah, it's a typical like trial by fire, uh, and uh, just to give. Uh, the local brewery shout out. I'm drinking a Restless Moons uh, New England IPA with a pretty cool name called Apocalypse Pony. So they're located right next to my wife's bakery. So well, enough know. about beer. Yeah. <laughs> the the actual topic at hand. Uh, well, I know we could totally just do a beer podcast, but <laughs> the topic at actual hand tonight is uh, post operative uh, knee rehabilitation. Derek wrote a really good blog that should be out soon on barbellmedicine.com and specifically talks about this and he kind of walks through and lays out a game plan for approaching post-operative knee rehabilitation. But we want to do a podcast as well about this topic because it tends to go well for people, whether you want to read about it, you can also listen to it or do both. And hopefully it's helpful for you. The context of this discussion um, is going to, and I'll I'll let Derek kind of take the reins here in a second from here. The context is for Things like arthroscopy, in which you could have ACL reconstruction. It also could be kind of more of an open surgical procedure, such as total knee arthroplasty or total knee joint replacement. And so we just want to take some time today to talk about, you know, the context of those situations as much as we can in generality and to provide some ways to approach rehabilitative treatment post-surgical. But there are going to be some discussions around things that need to happen pre-surgical as well. So Derek, I'll turn it over to you from here. So the impetus for this really started from trying to create a post-operative rehabilitation protocol for ACL reconstruction. And really, when you look through the literature on it, you you realize, one, there's a ton of heterogeneity, and two, there's just not really a good consensus on where we really should be. But there certainly is a lot of really good evidence on ways that we could be better. This goes under the assumption that an athlete has already had surgery and the clinical decision-making, especially for something like uh, a total knee or a meniscectomy, and even to a certain extent, an ACL reconstruction um, can be debated. But once the surgery has been done, it, it really comes down to what steps we need to take in order to have the best possible outcome out of it. And it, it turns out given different caveats for certain surgeries, but overall there, there are some heuristics that we really can't improve upon. 
some of it in the initial phases really comes down to starting with setting those expectations. And there still is this overarching theme that it is surgery that fixes your knee. And it turns out that you are, in fact, more than your knee. And the interesting process out of the gate really is talking about those expectations. The conversation that goes down a lot of times is how long is this going to take? How long is this going to take? And it varies according to surgery. And on some surgeries, such as an ACL reconstruction, we do have decent timelines that we're really aiming for, whereas something like a meniscectomy or like an OATS procedure or a microfracture. And, and I realize for a lot of the audience, there is going to be some technical jargon here, but it, they're all different riffs on a, the same arthroscopic procedure. Um, there will be caveats on how long you need to remain with weight-bearing precautions, so how much weight you can put down through your foot, how much we can bend, and then uh, contention upon the surgeon itself, how much load we can put down through. But understanding some of those expectations, even preoperatively, tends to help out a whole lot. At uh, my prior place of employment, we would see athletes preoperatively and discuss that with them. And we would be the ones to kind of explain, hey, we're going to take down your dressing on post-op day one. This is where things will likely ache. Um, these are some of the hurdles we're going to have early on. And that really helps to set the expectation because, you know, when random things happen, we automatically kind of ramp into, is this good? Is this bad? Is this dangerous? But when you already kind of know some of the hurdles coming out in front of you, it's a lot easier to say like, well, I, I kind of expected that. And there is a little bit of a conversation regarding how much negative connotation we want to assign to this. But, you know, we never really want to instill fear in our patients, but a lot of times understanding where some of these hurdles can be can be helpful without coming out of the gate and, you know, saying 23% of ACL reconstructions aren't successful. And, you know, but if you ask your athletes what percentage think they're going back to the, their prior level of function, there tends to be some discrepant numbers between what the athletes think and what the actuality of the situation is. Derek, so, so far I've heard like for uh, kind of pre-surgical consultation with the rehab professional, like the obvious benefit is going to be setting expectations of what to expect from the, the surgery. And then immediately, especially post-operatively, and it kind of also outlines like a game plan, like, you know, here's what happens post-operatively, <clears throat> excuse me, post-operatively day one. And then there's, I imagine, um, just kind of, I know, based on our prior discussions, there's other benefits to preoperative care as well as, as it relates to outcomes of the surgical procedure. Maybe you can talk a little bit about that also. Yeah, uh, it, there's actually a lot to that. As far as the actual courses of preoperative rehab, there is some evidence, especially for things like uh, total knee replacements and even ACL reconstructions, that if you can have a bout of preoperative rehab to start working on things like strengthening, uh, your outcomes tend to be a little bit better, especially in the short term after surgery. And it really comes down to establishing the consistency out of it. If you already know day one post-operative, we're going to do quadriceps sets, we're going to do some type of active assisted knee flexion, and we're going to do something to work on terminal knee extension, then you're already ahead of the game. There are no real surprises there versus coming in and, and maybe being in a little bit more pain on the first day and then 
you know, your therapist is telling you to move in a bunch of different ways that you weren't prepared to move. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And we're not, um, to be clear, we're not selling like prehab in the sense of what you commonly see on social media. This is much more, you know, case specific and looking at how can we keep you active through this process while also prepping you for post-operative care as well. And so I think that's a good, good summation of it. Yeah, in this instance, it is that gap between making the decision to undergo a surgical procedure and actually undergoing the surgical procedure. This isn't something to, that we're talking about. It is just the nebulous word that gets thrown around on the Internet. Yeah, mm-hmm. right. Is there any benefit in delaying that um, beyond, like, scheduling issues with the with the athlete or patient? Well, some of it depends on the surgery. Now, when you're talking about things like joint replacement, there is some evidence that if you can get someone more active who is has a higher BMI or has some uh, psychological signs like depression, and you can intervene on that preoperatively, then your outcomes are better. Now, as far as across the board, there is no universal rule for that. And we often forget that once again, this doesn't exist in a vacuum. So, you know, I've had highly motivated athletes who came from a one parent family where the mom worked two jobs and couldn't make appointments. And some of those social things, if you can understand them, even going into the surgery itself, you can kind of plan for the hurdles that those are even going to present to you as the rehab therapist. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. Yep. So I think like that covers, um, you know, is, is there anything else you want to talk about as far as preoperative care outside of expectations and then like physical activity recommendations? That really is the big part of it. And then having a conversation to kind of, especially to our barbell medicine audience, if an athlete has the expectation of training X number of days a week prior to surgery, whether it be two, three, four, five, um, then talking about how the rehab paradigm is going to fit into that. Because just because you had a knee surgery doesn't mean that you can't be working on bench press or some type of upper body ergometry. And there are ways with which to work around the issue at hand. So it's not necessarily that we need to approach this just from a, we're going to work on what's going on with your knee postoperatively. We need to approach this as we need to address you as an athlete and your overall concerns out of it. Now, once surgery has happened, you kind of get into the next phase of it because traditional rehab, and I'm going to make some generalizations here that obviously are not universal, ends up being two to three days a week in, in the initial four weeks after most procedures is when you tend to see all of the passive modalities really come out. And there's no evidence really to support those passive modalities beyond some of the things where, like if you're looking at some of the current evidence on things like blood flow restriction training or in the very early phases of rehab, neuromuscular electrical stimulation, they can have a place, but you're still in a traditional rehab sense. And I would posit that if we can take an athlete who's used to training five days a week and we can develop a well-thought-out plan for them to be doing five days a week, they may be better off than the current state of allocating two hours to rehab a week. 
Yeah, I know you and I have had that discussion several times over the years of how, like, you know, this athlete's been training up to 10 plus hours per week. If it's five days a week, practices are two hours a day, give or take, not even counting like strengthening conditioning sessions. And then suddenly post-operatively, we're like, yeah, we're going to see you twice a week for one hour. Mm -hmm. Like we've dramatically decreased their dosage of activity. Yeah, and that really is where some of the things like uh, the the telehealth ends up working out really well um, because we tend to have this inclination that we want to sit there and really just hawk over an athlete. And this tends to lead to this overcoaching in the initial phases. And one thing, if an athlete's used to training for two hours and you have even a one-on-one one-hour session, you're still at half of their allocated time. And, you know, they're, we're really kind of missing the boat on developing a well-rounded out program out of this. And I think that's, you can, or you can certainly make a case in the literature, that's why a lot of athletes are missing their return to sport criteria at the rate we currently are. If we can do something to where an athlete is able to train, you know, even if we're having some days where it's very technique heavy, at least they're getting in the gym, they're getting out, they're being social and they're, they're doing things versus just sitting around and, and watching TV until the next rehab appointment. Yeah, I think that's a great point about something we all talk about regularly, which is identity. And especially in these scenarios, like we've talked previously about how symptoms can kind of impede someone's personal identity. But in this regard, especially for our athletes, like trying to uh, go back to sports, suddenly they're not practicing with the team, they're not competing, like that identity could certainly be threatened. So it's like, how do we give back things that they can do to make them feel like an athlete again? Mm-hmm. And have you seen that change with different populations too? I mean, I know it's not, at least like in my experience, not as common to have more of an adult population who is maybe not competitive in like a, you know, like a field sport, but obviously it does happen still. So do you structure it similarly? Let's say like with an adult that like has a job, but also like stuff, maybe play soccer on the weekends. Well, I think there has to be an honest conversation about what the goals are. I've had athletes actually through barbell medicine who were recreational soccer players and then had a job on the side. And if we're talking about wanting to get back to a high level of soccer, then there needs to be some concessions on what we're going to do as the kind of rehab process evolves. But otherwise, I think if we're looking at our overall outcome metrics, you know, if we're reestablishing some of our strength symmetries and we're hitting our overall like readiness to play, then we should be okay to to progress back into things. But there's always, you know, we're never going to drop risk to zero. And mm-hmm. it all kind of depends on meeting the athlete where they're at as far as it goes. But once again, to kind of go at traditional rehab a little bit, a lot of how things are taught in schools are based upon can you do your activities of daily living? So can you walk? Can you go up and down a flight of stairs? Can you get on and off the toilet? which is awesome. Like people should be able to do those tasks, but the vast majority of people that are undergoing these surgeries are people that have goals above that. And if we're only getting people able to do things around their house, we're really missing the boat on getting them back to everything they want and should be able to do. I think this goes well with uh, one of your bullet points I saw, which is the insurance model. 
and kind of that plays into this whole discussion on, you know, frequency and volume of training, but also like readiness to, you know, return back to activities of daily living. And then what does that mean in comparison to sport and timeline is that definitely plays a role like uh, in this ability to how often can I schedule you? How long can I spend with you? So on and so forth. Yeah. And if you look at it, so an ACL is the easiest analogy to, or the easiest way to frame this through. So an athlete undergoing that, if you look at typical rehab, it really says we shouldn't be at return to competition until at least nine months. Some people would argue it should be even longer than that. In a normal rehab scenario, you're going to get maybe 24 visits. So if I'm trying to stretch that out over nine months, I'm probably not doing too much with that athlete. So what we tend to see a lot of times is that two to three week or two to three times a week for six to twelve weeks, and then you know at three months in between three months and nine months, there's this magical go out into the limbo and hope for the best. Yeah. And the good part about kind of the model we're trying to put forth out of that is it it really does work to transition from that activities of daily living to taking an athlete through the stages to get back. And there's been a much better delineation of that. I would say in the last four years in between getting an athlete back to participation, then practice and then competition. And it really is setting up the environment with sports specific drills or training modalities or whatever we need in order to really establish that. And the vast majority of our lift or our listeners are likely barbell athletes. And there, for a lot of these surgeries, there shouldn't be that long of a gap before we can start putting a bar back on your back. And it's not necessarily that we have you back to your prior one RM squat. It, it is like slowly progressing through. And getting back to the expectation side of things, it's pretty common in the early phases for there to be a shift towards the non-surgical leg or to not be able to hit prior levels of depth. And that's fine, but those are things we need to work on as far as controlling variables. And getting back to just getting into technique work in general, someone who's able to work on their technique four or five days a week is likely like statistically probably better to be off or better off than someone who's only one to two times a week. I know you go um, in much more detail in the article, uh, but can you give us like a broad overview of like, okay, person presents post-operatively for ACL reconstruction day one. And, and let's talk, we've kind of already talked about some expectations, but what does activity look like, you know, what movements are you doing? What are your goals? Uh, you know, I'm assuming things like re- return normative range of motion. And then how does that progress? And this could just kind of be the highlights. I know the article goes in a lot more detail on this. Yeah. So um, once again, there's going to be caveats to specific surgeries that are going to vary. And even when in regards to an ACL reconstruction, because sometimes you have a concomitant injury, like a meniscal repair that will have somebody non-weight bearing or weight bearing restrictions for six weeks. Um, but let's go just best case ideal scenario. Um, day one post-op, you're coming in, we're doing a, a dressing change, and then we're going to start working on terminal knee extension via likely a heel prop and then working on isometric quadriceps sets. So just getting your quadriceps to fire. 
and then likely doing some edge of bed knee flexion, active assisted, so using one leg to help out with the other. Um, in most cases, the athlete will be weight bearing as tolerated, so they should be able to put as much weight down on their foot as they want. Now, there is a high degree of variability in the initial phases of this, and this really is kind of the appreciation out of it is in the beginning, there is no real good or bad, and you, you just have to concede that you are as an athlete where you are. And it's by typically about week four that everyone starts meeting in the middle out of it. Now, in the beginning, the major goals are, are all based on reestablishing close to normal range of motion and starting to get your quadricep firing uh, to the degree of the non-surgical leg. And here, you know, our standards are very arbitrary. And, and what you're here, because we're not going to 1RM somebody four weeks out of an ACL reconstruction. So you're kind of comparing to the non-surgical leg the whole time. You'll hear different litmus. Um, some people will use time. I'm not a big fan of using time for how long you should be on an assisted device. I, I think the uh, overall metric of being able to do 10 straight leg raises without a, a quadricep lag, so being able to keep your knee as straight as you can, um, you're likely fine to start weaning off. But even then, depending on the athlete, sometimes you may wean off around the house and then start progressing to weaning off around the community. So this really is kind of the individualization of the program getting into it. Once you can start getting both feet down, then we're starting to work on some of the basic mechanics of a squat. And it is just building back into slowly reestablishing some of these patterns that people were good at before, especially for a barbell athlete. Now, in when I was in the pediatric athletic world more, it was interesting because you're kind of getting a blank slate. Most of these athletes have yeah. never learned how to squat before, never learned how to deadlift before. So in that instance, you're, you're teaching the technique just out of the gate. And there, you know, some it's just like school. Like some people pick up on math fast, some people take a little bit longer. And you have to be willing to concede that there's not a specific at week five, day four, we should be at X. And yeah. mm -hmm. that's why you've seen a lot of protocols shift away from specific timeframes into more criteria based. No, um, just briefly, we don't have to go down this rabbit hole too much, but we're known for discussing kind of uh, the controversy of technique as it relates to symptoms. But I think it's important for people to understand, especially in this context, uh, we aren't looking for this idea of perfection because we're fully expecting when they're trying to learn how to hip depth again or go through a squat pattern that they've maybe not done in several weeks that things aren't going to look, quote unquote, ideal to their previous squat pattern. Do you want to talk about that? Anything specific, Derek? Yeah, I think the main thing is, are we making progress week over week? And if you look at it in terms of having a, what we would just classify as a textbook squat, there tends to be two very oversimplified camps. The, it needs to look perfect before I load it and the let's just load it and it'll catch up at the end. And I don't think either side of that equation is right, but this kind of goes into the beauty of having an athlete in multiple days. Cause it's not uncommon when I program for these athletes to say, we're going to do three sets of six at RPE seven, but your primary focus is working on the symmetry and technique of your squat. 
And then we're going to do three sets of six RPE seven. And here I want your primary focus working on depth. So we're taking the exact same like face validity prescription, but we have two different objectives on what we're working for out of it. And there may be two drastically different weights out of that. Yeah. Yeah. And I think this is the biggest thing like people miss is that it's, it's the same prescription, but with a massively different goal. And the goal is what's causing the change from week to week. Yes. And this really is, we, we have a lot of goals that, uh, we should be hitting and especially in post-operative knee rehab a lot of those are predicated on strength especially the initial goals and here is the one point where you know in the barbell medicine community we tend to talk about like symmetry not mattering as much in the post-operative rehab world symmetry matters a lot and if i were going to distill it down like it's quadricep weakness until proven otherwise Mm -hmm. And if you look at some of the evidence, there are some papers by Greenberg on uh, what we use to really determine our return to sport criteria. And it's kind of funny because what you'll hear a lot of times is we use strength and then you say, well, how are you testing that? And you'll hear a manual muscle test. And a manual muscle test is someone standing and holding your shin and you're kicking out against them. And if they can resist you, then you're, rated a five out of five or strong, which cool. But, you know, if you're a 500 pound squatter, you could be really weak compared to where you were and still not pick that up. So there, there needs to be more objective ways with which to measure it. And, you know, I don't think we need to one RM our athletes, especially in the early phases of rehab, but having some proxy, whether it be in the open chain knee extension um, would probably be the most ideal as far as typical gym equipment. Um, what we use in rehab if we're face to face a lot of times is an isometric dynamometer or so it's basically something that no matter how hard you kick out against it, you're not moving it or in the rehab research world and isokinetic where it's a machine where no matter how hard you kick against it, it only goes so fast. And those are very accurate ways of measuring quadricep strength. I think the and the big like take home point there is like having some quote unquote objective measurement to track side to side differences and looking for strength symmetry in this regard rather than just oh I'm going to hold my hand out in front of your your shin and you're going to kick out as hard as you can and supposedly I can detect you know these minute differences from side to side uh, it's going to be pretty difficult to do so having that objective measurement in place is, is pretty ideal. Mm-hmm. But it also makes the case for why we're likely not doing enough to load our athletes in the rehab process itself, um, strictly because a lot of athletes aren't meeting that strength criteria. And I think what's happened a lot of times is we start talking about like what it what is healed, and yeah. like that's awesome that your graft is healed, like mm-hmm. from as far as us taking an image. Um, and comparing it to the other side, so re-ligmentization at nine months. But, you know, if you're 40% as strong as your non-surgical leg, are are you really healed and prepared to go back to sport? Yeah. Yeah, and in terms of benchmarks, um, what are you looking for in particular? So 
what you're going to hear a lot of times is at 12 weeks for status post ACL reconstruction. And once again, we're going to use this as our benchmark. There is some variability according to the surgery you're having. And if you're not on weight bearing, it's probably going to extrapolate this out. Um, at 12 weeks, we're shooting for 80% side to side. Now, if you look at the literature on how good we are at hitting that, we have a lot of room for improvement. But I'll still go back and say most of the studies looking at this are in their traditional two-day-a-week model. And if you look at the dosing, I would still say we have a lot of room for improvement out of it. Um, and then you'll start seeing things like hop testing coming in. And there it, it is, the typical battery is a single-leg hop. So how far can you hop? one bound on one leg and then test it against the non-surgical leg, uh, a triple hop, and then a crossover hop. So it's just different variants on hopping. And I think that's good because it does show, it, it gives you some information on how an athlete is landing, whether it be from mechanics. And, and the big thing really is picking up fear. And the thing we haven't really talked about yet is how confident an athlete is, especially in the later sides of rehab. Some of what needs to be programmed in, especially if someone is hesitant to do things, it's a lot of what we talk about in the general sense of rehab as far as graded exposure. So after an ACL reconstruction, if someone is really fearful of jumping, then we need to start scaling in some drills with which to get their confidence back up in it. And it is that transition from rehab to participation and participation. You're starting to do some of the drills and you may be doing them by yourself and then getting into practice where it's a much more controlled environment. And there you're going to be reacting to the athletes around you and, and then finally play. And there we're actually in the competition. And the problem that we have a lot of times is there tends to be this like, we think that once we hit a certain landmark, we have a full go. And basically everything we know about training is we want to invo uh, we want to avoid big inflection points. So the more we can kind of grade this scale back into it, the better off we're going to be. Yeah. So, I mean, there's a, there's a lot there that obviously goes into a lot more detail in the, the write-up that'll be out soon on barbellmedicine.com. Um, I was thinking of, as you were talking, the post that was actually made today on Barbell Medicine's Instagram about muscle imbalances. And I think the only time like you're going to hear us talk about this stuff is going to be in these, uh, there's, there's several times, but one specifically will be this post-operative situation where we are looking to see for strength imbalances in regards to like from side to side surgical versus non-surgical and tracking that. Um, so I think there is a reason to, to check that stuff and then track it over time. And then that's part of your return to sport criteria to Derek's point about, you know, ha have you checked all the boxes and then is, does green mean go and then getting back to practice and then competition? Yeah. Well, it's and still, oh. go ahead. Amara. Well, well, I was going to say like, without going down like a deep tangent, even, even in that like broad statement, I think what we're really getting at is like this subjective, assumption of imbalance where like what we're talking about is like an objective measurement right. of a specific test. So even like an isometric dynamometer really just tests isometric strength. And then that's, that's it. Like you, you can infer from there, but you can't make any uh, further assumptions about 
you know, maybe it's going to be close to the isokinetic strength, but it's not going to be exactly correlative to what their single leg squat looks like or their bilateral squat. So I think just remembering like specific tests, tests that specific thing. And then where you see some of this like common talk is very like subjective, like, oh, like my left glute feels different than my right glute, which is valid, but that doesn't necessitate that there is an actual imbalance. Right. Well, I think quote unquote not firing. Yeah. Go ahead, Derek. Well, part of the reason I think a lot of this perpetuated is because the main thing that gets used with which to test this is manual muscle testing. And once again, it's pretty hard to break a quad. So Mm -hmm. you're not going to hear that someone has quadriceps amnesia, but like if I (laughs) even a a decently strong athlete on their side and I manual muscle test them, like I can break them if I want to. Yeah. So like, congratulations, you just became a four out of five. Uh, Oh my God, you have gluteal amnesia. We're going to give you a a test for recall 30 (laughs) minutes from now. We're going to see how well you do. And you know, it's, it's not it, if we're going to test strength, it has to be sensitive enough to distinguish subnormal from normal. It has yeah. to be precise enough to document to get both increases and decreases in strength. So you need to be able to figure out which way it's going and me pushing down on your leg is not going to do that. It needs to be reliable, which means we all kind of agree on what's going on. And most of all, and this is the one that kind of gets me when we talk about muscle imbalances in the way that it was referred to in that post it needs to be predictive of other variables. And saying that me pushing against your arm means you have a weak left external oblique and we need to work on pick whatever chain you want. And, you know, it's, we like assembling these things that actually don't have any outcomes out of them instead of just checking on the basic thing. Like, Hey, did we actually check your quadriceps strength in a manner with which we can be sensitive enough to distinguish what the actual decrease is? So like at one point after an injury, I was a 75% quadriceps deficit at six or on an isokinetic dynamometer, which meant I was kicking out, I think uh, 245 pounds with my left leg and like 65 with my right. And but if you had someone do how we would traditionally test for quadriceps strength, nobody's picking that up. Mm-hmm. Which is a very large variation. But yeah. you're right. Like I, I'm skeptical that they could pick that up with their hands. Yeah. And it's just this kind of gets into the overarching ways that we can improve as far as not only how we're programming for our athletes, but how we're testing them. And if you look at it in the post-operative sense, you know, we don't need this huge complex. We're doing something for the sake of doing it program. We need to make sure that we're meeting the athlete's goals on where they're at programming around their injury as well as directly at. So, you know, once again, there's no reason that we can't start some bench press without a leg drive pretty early on, even if we're on some weight bearing restrictions. So the options. Yeah. And it really is almost like an odyssey of the mind. Like these are the constraints we have. How can we develop something for it? And I'll certainly say, as we picked up athletes that are in that transition phase, 
being able to take an athlete that traditionally I would have had two days a week for an hour and say, I'm going to write you a five day a week program. It has been refreshing, not only because of the leeway it gives me as a coach to really program to meet their needs, but the like overall objective goals we're able to hit out of it. Like consistency wins 98 times out of a hundred and just carte blanche typically if you take an athlete who's training two days a week versus an athlete training five days a week and they're on equally smart programs the athlete training five days a week is going to crush them this is really where you know using something to where an athlete can train with some more independence but can train more consistently comes in much more handy so I don't necessarily need to be there and watch every rep, especially in today's world where we can record sets and review afterwards. It, if I give an athlete a program, then if need be, we can run something that lasts an hour and a half, two hours to, to meet where they were prior. And it also doesn't necessarily relegate us to just doing some strength training. Um, it's not uncommon for us to program whatever we're going to do to address our strength goals and then transition into things like running drills or plyometric drills, or even um, I've certainly even had athletes work with their training partner to do some multi-directional drills as we start getting back into the participation phase. But here there's almost another layer to it as well, because we tend to think of things in a little bit more of a sterile environment of, well, I'm going to teach you a 45 degree cut, or I'm going to teach you a 90 degree cut. But there are still even layers to this because how a cornerback is going to cut is going to be different than how a wide receiver is going to cut. And this is where having someone who has a little bit more of an understanding of sport and the drills associated with it also really helps as we go from participation into practice because our ultimate goal is to get that athlete better or get that athlete to the point where there is no problems with them going back with their teammates. Yeah. I think there's a lot of good, a lot of good points there. The other, the other thing I really like about remote work that we have the opportunity to do with barbell medicine is I think it does help some people with uh, empowerment and a little bit of maybe self-efficacy. This is obviously anecdotal, but when we write a program, like they're kind of, they're not necessarily on their own, but we're not directly right there beside them. And so they have to kind of go implement it and then they can come back to us and we reconvene and talk about like, what did they do? How did they engage the prescription? And then are there things that we needed to do differently or we could have done differently? Or how did that go? Uh, to me anyways, it seems as though that's a bit of an empowerment point for them as well. I don't know if you guys have had similar experiences. Well, I think in some regard it does, we kind of select for people that are probably a little bit higher motivated out of it. And, but I even think if a model could exist where we could get individuals to go do this on their own a little bit more, it would be better. And if you even look at it from how we're set up as a society now, we're used to like checking that box on our phone that we got our steps for the day or, or whatever arbitrary yeah. metric we're going to have. And in this instance, knowing there's some accountability on the other side of, Hey, I needed to go put this work in today. I, I think just even from a psychological standpoint, likely could increase some of the compliance to the things we need. Oh yeah. I've, I've literally had people say to me like, Oh, I missed a workout and got the email from, cause we use true coach to program. And they're like, that was like my cue, like, Oh, you know, damn it. I missed this. I need to go do this, which I thought was interesting to hear that from folks. 
yeah, no, I'll I'll screen certain patients in the clinic and see who's like gonna be maybe better suited for like doing more work on their own and using the clinic as more of like a check in or like if you want to do a session and have me coach you for you know the whole the whole session we'll use it like that. So the remote work is flexible with that, and uh, a lot of it's subjective of just me kind of feeling out you know what they want to do and also re- like just telling me what what they want to do so it's nice to have that option yeah and this isn't a discount to clinic overall because i certainly think there is some benefit to being able to sit there especially when we're in the participation and practice phases and work on drills with the athlete there um, i've had athletes in the past who didn't like stepping to their surgical side and putting weight on it. So it was being able to set up drills to where they were paying attention to me mostly, but I was trying to force them in that direction as, as a way of establishing some confidence in it. And you can do that certainly from the remote side of things. It just takes a little bit more work. So none of this is a panacea, but as a heuristic, once again, I, I really think we can really have good outcomes by having our athletes be more active designing programs to really help us achieve those metrics that we're looking for later in the rehab phases. Yeah. Individualizing our rehabilitative care. Um, Yeah. I think that's a great talking point for sure. Is there anything else you want to add to this discussion before we dive into social media questions? Uh, Let's, let's get it going. Quick fire. All right. So these are actually, um, not to say our other ones haven't been good, but these are really good questions specific to the topic we're discussing. So the first one, I think is a great one. It's been previously quite a controversial discussion, but when should you focus on open kinetic chain versus closed kinetic chain exercises? I think for the most part, when I've seen this argument come up, feel free to correct me, it's going to be ACL reconstruction post-operative cases. Um, you also see it with things like uh, chondromalacia and picks and microfractures. Um, there, I think you can make a little bit of a case that we may want to hold off if it's something like a retropatellar chondroplasty. But overall, the original thought process was that we staved off of this, uh, especially after ACL reconstruction. And, and for the listeners, open chain, it, you can think of as a knee extension machine for the purpose of this argument, whereas close kinetic chain, squat, lunge, leg press, anything where um, multiple joints are working at once versus open, we're just basically hitting a quad um, for this argument. Um, And the original thought was that you put too much strain on the graft. And this has been grossly disproven. I, I would say, once again, the dose still makes the poison. I don't know that I would be three sets of 10 RPE nining someone four weeks after an ACL reconstruction, but it used to be, and it's funny because this is certainly how I was taught. And one thing I've learned, the more I've read research is that even though I have the highest respect for my mentors, and I think they were really smart, occasionally you just say stuff because it's what you heard. And it becomes dogma. And then eventually you go back and read the papers and you're like, oh, that's not what this said at all. And, you know, I I liken it to there's the metaphor that people talk about with the monkeys and there's a ladder and banana. And every time a monkey goes to climb for the banana, they hose off all the monkeys that didn't climb. And eventually the other monkeys start beating the crap out of the monkey going for the banana. And then they slowly change out the monkeys 
but they take away the water side of it and the monkeys just keep berating. And I think, it, you know, they never stop to ask like, well, we're not getting hit with water anymore. Why are we doing this? And I have not heard that. <laughs> that's pretty funny. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. This is like a pretty classic. Uh, that's crazy. Um, I feel like I talked to you more than my wife. So I'm amazed. I've, yeah. this I've not heard that uh, at all. So. <laughs> but it is a pretty good representation of how rehab works a lot of times to where, you know, someone had this thought and they were kind of ostracized for it, even if they could support it with research and it just got perpetuated, perpetuated until it's like, well, why the hell are we doing this? And, and so with the open chain debate, how it was taught was, well, at week six, you could start stressing the graft and we're going to block them at 40 degrees and then give them 10 degrees a week. And it was this overly complex reaction off of a not that high level evidence paper three, which is basically most of rehab in general. And what's really been shown recently is we probably should be programming some more of this open chain work in earlier on. Um, I don't think it's like there's a specific day where it needs to start, but in the same regard, like the answer is probably earlier than when most of us would think. Um, it's not uncommon for me if someone um, in the rehab setting in one-on-one, a lot of times what I would do is at week six, we would get on the ice connect dynamometer and do a bit of a test. And if someone was where I expected them to be, so say 70% of their non-surgical leg, we would kind of carry on as planned. Whereas if we were at 50%, we're going to start really hammering some open kinetic chain exercises. And I think what a lot of this comes down to is how comfortable is your clinician with what's going on and how much are they And once again, there is a spectrum with this, how much are they willing to push things? And if an athlete is used to, you know, it's funny because we tend to call athletes freaks and then we all try and, treat them like they're standard and like freaks need to do freak things. And I think a lot of times you have to realize that it's not even about reestablishing normal for your athlete. It's helping them find that new normal and the degree of weirdness for the individual athlete is going to be predicated upon what their goals are and what their past training history is. Like so much of this is just individualizing to the person in front of you. Like I've had people who are, who are quote unquote, like, you know, so to speak freaks. And it's like, Oh, okay. This, uh, this person's like intuitively trying to push the barrier maybe ahead of what we want to do. So we need to dial this back a little bit, or this person is probably much more capable than what they realize they are. We need to push this envelope a little bit. So here, and I think that is a phenomenal point to caveat the other side of the spectrum that just because you can, doesn't necessarily mean you should. Yeah. especially in the post-operative phase. And this is where having someone guide really comes in handy, especially someone with some familiarity with your surgery, because there are certain things that there it's always a game of probability, but it's how much risk are you willing to accept? And, you know, if you go on social media, you see these guys who have a biceps tendon repair and four weeks later they're deadlifting mm-hmm. and you're like, dude, I get it. You want to get back. 
but like if we're talking risk reward, not a smart decision. Yeah. Do we really need to do this right now? You know? Yeah. But in those instances, it really is like when, when your identity is attached to squat bench deadlift and that's all, you know, then occasionally it's hard to realize, Hey, lunges are okay. Uh, A safety squat bar is okay. Leg press is okay. You know, there, there are other ways to approach this problem that don't increase our risk, but it's having a clinician who can work around that problem while things are healing to the extent they need to heal. So big takeaway point on this question is open connect chain exercises are not, not only okay, but something probably we should be including in rehabilitative care. Uh, for post-op surgical knee situations, especially as it relates to like ACL reconstruction. And also just kind of make a blanket statement here. Uh, for whatever reason, I still see this demonized in the, the fitness world and rehab world oftentimes about doing like knee extensions being bad for knees. I really don't know why this is still lingering, but you're going to be okay. You can do knee extensions. It's fine. Yeah, I honestly don't know. But I mean, I remember hearing that or, or or almost just being like, why not make it more quote unquote functional and have them, you know, weight bear. But when it comes to kind of going back to like what Eric said earlier, it's or paraphrasing like Eric Mira, it's like it's the quad until it's not the quad. And yes. really knee extensions are one of the best ways to like isolate quad strength. So why not do it? And it doesn't mean like only do that, but why not include it if you have access to it? Yeah. So question number two, any research on differential outcomes of surgical versus non-surgical treatment for ACL tears? Yes. Um, Here we get into an interesting can of worms conversation. I don't know. We want to devote a ton of time to if you ask, and this is one of my favorite questions to pimp, uh, residents and interns on is why do we do ACL reconstructions? The answer you will hear a lot of times has something to do with reestablishing normal knee kinematics or preventing knee osteoarthritis. Both of those are wrong. Your knee kinematics change after surgery. There are some great papers by Bainan on this. Um, It doesn't reduce your risk of knee osteoarthritis afterwards, but good news is having the osteoarthritis, the stronger you are, the less likely you are to be symptomatic. So once again, we should probably be really hitting our outcome measures. The main reason that you should undergo an ACL reconstruction is to return to level one sports. Level one sports are those requiring change of direction, uh, cutting and jumping. So, you know, if you're a basketball player, if you're a football player, we can certainly have the conversation. You should have your ACL reconstructed. If you're a 40-year-old who tears his ACL in an ATV accident, probably don't need that. Yeah. And, (laughs) like, this is one of those moments where you go, depending on your religious belief, humans have been around between 6,000 and a few million years. We've been doing ACL reconstruction for about 60 of those years. Pretty sure it didn't kill you back in the day. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And, and I and, have this conversation. Uh, well, go ahead. Well, but there are even studies where they look at individuals undergoing total knee uh, replacement, and a lot of them are ACL deficient. And it's not like they realize they tore their ACL. 
Yeah. So, you know, there are, this is something that you can kind of devote your entire conversation to, but those individuals that are copers can get by perfectly fine without an ACL reconstruction. Now the literature is not really where it should be to really discern who is going to be a coper and who needs to undergo surgery, but you can kind of blame our sports television for the thought that everyone should have surgery because all we see are these high level athletes. You get hurt, you have surgery, you go back to sport. Well, that's awesome. They're getting paid to do that. Like if you're doing it once every three months, then do you really need to sacrifice nine months of rehab for something that we can probably get you back to 80% of what you were doing, 90% of what you were doing within three months tops. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's definitely a conversation worth having, uh, in the, in the context of like ACL reconstruction. And it, it also has come up a lot, um, as well with meniscus issues, uh, just anecdotally in the clinic. And then also joint replacements, total knee arthroplasties that's come up as well of having this conversation of like necessity of surgical intervention for desired outcomes. The like easy example that comes to mind that I think of is like our friend, John Hodges, who I, John doesn't have ACLs in either knee, right? Uh, I don't think so. Yeah. Who does like powerlifting still? And so it really comes down to just like the point of that example is, is like, what are you trying to accomplish? And is the the necessity here for the surgical intervention for you to go out and accomplish whatever X is? Mm-hmm. Yeah. My dad still doesn't have an ACL and like his left knee. Cause in the eighties yeah. they were like, you're not a professional athlete. So just go home and wear this brace. If you're going to do something sport-like. And so to that, we'll touch on that and say there's no good evidence for bracing after ACL well, yeah. reconstruction either. Yes. Uh, <laughs> but if, if you look at it, like the layers to it. So if you tear your ACL and you are not going to return to high level sport that involves cutting, running or cutting, jumping, change of direction, we can make a case that maybe this isn't something you should undergo. If you do choose to undergo it, even at the elite level, only 83% of athletes return to sport. At the high school and younger level, our retail rate is 23%. So that means one in four have this injury again. Now, granted, if you look at our return to sport criteria, a lot of people aren't hitting the metrics that we want them to hit. But if you take that even a step further, there's a paper by Arden from 2014 that show that only 55% of people that aren't elite athletes return to competitive sport. Now, there are layers to this as well because some of it is, you know, if you tore your senior year, your odds are not going to go play D1 if you're the average athlete. So, like, there, there's obviously layers to the conversation out of it. But this simplistic view of tear, get reconstructed, have great outcome is missing a lot of layers. Yeah, I don't think I have anything else to add there. Amato, do you? No, I think that's, uh, yeah, I, I think Derek and I have had this conversation, or he's had this probably conversation with a lot of people. It's like, if you would tear your ACL, if you would have tear your ACL right now, would you get, um, surgery for it nope, nope. i think about that a lot in myself and nope. i'm leaning i would lean uh, heavily towards no i am certainly not returning to like level one or d1 athletics or and definitely not professional level 
anything. So, <laughs> yeah, it just would like, why would I? It just doesn't make sense for risk versus benefits. So, yeah. Uh, question number four How many minutes of. <laughs> This is from our friend, uh, Jason, your, how many, uh, minutes of manual therapy are needed to break up scar tissue? Is it better if ultrasound is used too? Well, it's eight minutes, right? Yeah. Right. At least one unit. Yeah. Um, so, oh my God, it's, <laughs> Thanks, Jason. What, what's funny is I've looked at this question since before we started the podcast and try to think of a snarky response. And all I could think of is just please, for the love of God, don't have people do that. Um, What's interesting is you'll see these papers on like patellar mobilization and those individuals meet uh, terminal knee extension like a week faster than other individuals. Well, here's the thing. If I'm on a nine month protocol, I don't care if you get there a week faster. The difference between week three and week four to me is so minuscule that I just don't see the need to be billing extra units for my athletes. Because even out of it, and this is just something from the rehab world, how billing is done is by time. And if you're billing three units versus four units, then or four units versus six units at some clinics I've interacted with, then you know, you're costing the patient more on the back end or costing insurance more on the back end. So in either instance, cool, make your money, but don't make your money at something that doesn't actually help you reach our ultimate outcome. The thing that's weird to me, especially in like the, I keep coming back to the ACL context. Um, but the thing that's weird to me is like, I've been in several situations where a person's insurance plan only allows 30 visits. And we've already talked about this being a nine month process oftentimes. And that doesn't mean you're like, you're seeing me every single week for nine months, but at any rate, like that's our rate limiting factor is those 30 visits. And I end up having to write insurance letters, you know, kind of pleading for like, look, we've not hit these metrics. This is why we need more visits. If you're layering in also like using those visits allotments for spending time doing manual therapy, like how are you, how does that work out in the long run? Like spending time on actual things that are going to matter and then getting back to their sport. It's, it's an interesting conversation because I, I've definitely oscillated on not having patients in in the early phases to save the visits towards later and then going back yeah. because I think it, it cuts both ways and there's not a good solution when you have that type of constraint. And that's honestly why, once again, I think something where you can have someone coach five days a week and be a little bit more hands-off is better. But in the initial phases is really when for a certain athlete, especially someone who has some uh, concerns about what's going on, they need to be in there and talking out what's going on, or, you know, they need to have access to a coach is probably a, just as good a way of saying it. Because I, I like, I've definitely had athletes who in the initial phases, you know, we have some very long conversations about where their headspace is at. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, thanks Jason. That, that could be a whole another Maybe we'll do that one day. I think if we did an episode on manual therapy, we would just drink more alcohol than we're currently drinking and curse a lot more to the point that it just wouldn't be like publishable. But yeah. uh, what advice do you wish, sir? Oh, this is a good one. What advice do you wish surgeons would give to patients uh, post-op? So you guys want to feel this first because I feel like out of the three of us, I have the most interaction with surgeons. Definitely. <laughs> 
Um, I would say maybe there's some conversations as well as pre-op as far as like setting expectations. And we had this kind of discussion with like osteoarthritis on our prior podcast of like, you know, if you're looking at you were not active at all and you're going to start running marathons postoperatively, yeah, that may not be the best decision. Like your level of function going into the surgery is probably going to greatly influence the level of function postoperatively. So I wouldn't look at it as like a panacea to correcting your quote unquote knee issue. So that would be one, like, is this actually a necessary surgical intervention to get to the outcomes. So I think that conversation should obviously occur preoperatively. And then postoperatively is looking at, you know, setting expectations for how long this process is going to take. What are like normative things for them to experience, whether we're talking like at the knee level specifically, like with signs and symptoms, or as they progress towards, you know, like we're going to bring you back at the six month mark, we're going to do testing and we're checking for this so on and so forth. So just really like my big thing would be setting expectations for the process and then making sure preoperatively is this like the best decision and is it beyond a decision of just because we can, we do. Amato. Oh, I thought you cut out. No, I was, I'm done. Um, that was just like my end. I'm going to start saying like end scene. End scene, yeah. No, I would, I would agree with, all of that. It's like that almost that pre-surgical educational session would be what I would be concerned with, like risk reward and then what the purpose of the surgery really is. Most of the patients I see that are post-operative for knee surgery are not ACL reconstruction, but um, total knee arthroplasty, the still occasional like arthroscopic knee meniscectomy debridement as much as I uh, don't wish that, wish that wouldn't happen, but at least like having the expectation, like this will set you up for rehab. And then like the rehab being very important process of like moving yeah. forward because of how many people get the surgery and then they're like three, four, five weeks out and they're miserable because they're in a lot of pain and things aren't going the way they envisioned it based on what the surgeon kind of laid out as like this is like the fix and even if they didn't say that specifically at least that's the patient's perception that like the surgery was the fix and i don't understand why i'm not you know feeling better all now there, there's a whole podcast in that response but uh just yeah. as far as like yeah like fixing someone but um go ahead derek no to that point uh without going over the top like the best surgeons I've worked with all have a carte blanche statement of the surgery is not going to be what fixes you. It's going to be the work that you're going to do after surgery. Yeah. And and I think if this question is coming from a rehab professional, my advice as someone who's worked very closely with surgeons, my entire career is realize they're humans too. Like, you know, we all make mistakes and there's not some pedestal that they're up on feel like don't feel threatened to approach them if you know what you're talking about like I, i've certainly had some knockdown drag outs with some surgeons i've worked with and this is that whole a lot of times we're willing to acquiesce some of our beliefs in order for short-term gains and instead of like sticking to our guns on what the research really says out of it and I've certainly been fortunate enough to work with some extremely intelligent surgeons, but I've also had some other ones that like I probably wouldn't let operate on the shoulder, pork shoulder. I'm going to smoke this weekend. And like, in but 
you know, in the same regard, like surgeons are people too. You're going to have some yeah. that are phenomenal what they're doing, great critical thinkers, uh, really out in the patient's best interest. And it's ultimately up to you to build those relationships and figure out where they're going to be. Because, listen, just like the surgeon may say, go see Derek or go see Amato, like at some point you also have the like, you know, wouldn't go see this person. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I think the important thing, especially if you're a rehab professional, um, as that minimal attempt to forge that relationship uh, with the surgeon, it may not go well. It may lead to nowhere but frustration, but it, it may lead somewhere. And you may forge a relationship and you can have discussions about this topic for the benefit of the patient and other future patients in the long run. So it may turn out really well, but you don't know if you don't at least try to go that route. The next question uh, is a good one. And and this is also beyond just like rehab. We could easily turn this into uh, exercise templates, but protocol versus patient's tolerance. Depends on the surgery. Um, I would say in the grand scheme of things, someone who's feeling great after surgery makes me a thousand times more nervous than someone who's having a couple problems after surgery. So I, I certainly don't think patient tolerance is in and of itself um, the best litmus. I, I think it's, that's a false dichotomy. Uh, it, it's, it needs to be an amalgam of the two. So historically, uh, this is going to show the gray in my beard. Um, so what we had initially was things were set at a six to eight month return to sport after ACL reconstruction. Once again, we're using this as our litmus across the board. Then we had some papers come out that talked about criteria based. And if an athlete met X criteria, they could return to their sport. So people were returning to sport at like three, four months. And then that was awesome for the first three, four months. And then what you started seeing was the re-injury rate just shooting through the roof. And then we've had some papers come out recently that have argued for up to two years, which I think is moronic, um, waiting to return to sport after ACL reconstruction. And so there, there does need to be some timeframes in there. Like to that point, like if someone's feeling great after they fractured their femur, you're not going to tell them to go squat three weeks after, like there has to be some healing parameters of what we understand in there. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think we've already talked about number seven, uh, somewhat we've talked about ACL reconstruction uh, the person also asked, so the full question is timeframes for ACL reconstruction versus patellar tendon versus quad tendon. Um, I'll be honest. I haven't seen a lot of quad tendons and I would assume that like the real conversation as far as the bolus of the literature at this point is on patellar tendons versus hamstring tendons. And uh, there's no real difference between the two. Um, you'll hear some anecdotal things and I won't even disclose what those are because I just can't support it with any evidence, but in the grand scheme of things, six, one half dozen, the other, um, I would say this, there is some evidence that, uh, for retailers, your best bet on this is go with the one your surgeon's done the most of. Um, they did one study where they looked at rates of re-injury and surgeons who did more than hundred reconstructions a year had a much lower re-injury rate than those who did less. So like go to someone who has performed the surgery a, a good number of times. The only thing, uh, well, I don't want to say that, but I've listened to you give an ACL lecture for like, I don't know, 
four years at this point. Yeah. And the one thing that's regularly stood out to me when I do like tune in is allograft is not the way to go. Uh, do you still kind of stand by that statement? Yes. I think there are still layers to it, but if you look at the moon and Mars cohorts, there is a much higher retail rate in ACLR allograft than uh, autographs. And so for audience purpose, would you define just allograft and autograft for them? Allograft comes from a cadaver. Autograft comes from you. So autograft um, in the instance of an ACL reconstruction is your patellar tendon, uh, hamstring, or quadriceps. Yeah. Um, oh, this is also a good one. This is from Will, uh, which the other question was too. Best cut of meat in the leg, and how would you prepare it? reminds me of the episode of <laughs> well, like that's uh, a whole other episode with the yeah the beer podcast like you know you, you prepare it in the clay and you wrap it in the fig leaves <clears throat> and uh, somehow it winds up in the big green egg and you smoke it for like 22 hours and well here so let's let's get on this quick because i don't want this to turn into a cooking podcast <laughs> but i think if you've done your fair share of breaking down animals it gives you an appreciation for the different types of muscle in an animal. And once again, like when we talk about like pliability and you hear all this stuff from the mobility gurus, they tend to treat us as though every muscle in the body is heterogeneous. But what you'll find, once again, some muscles are in the animal world are great for grilling. Some need braised and there's different techniques to go with all of it. Um, after living in California for a few years, I'm probably going to give the nod on this to a tri-tip steak just because I think it's so versatile. Mm -hmm. You can braise it. You can grill it. Um, if you can dream it, you can do it with that cut. Tri-tip. There you mm -hmm. go. I'm not even going to attempt to answer that question because I don't. I have no idea. So, um, yeah, I know some good chefs that could answer it, though. Amato, do you have an answer to it? No, I just asked Derek if I ever have something. Yeah. And I have two eye round roasts now in my freezer, and I'm like dreading making them, but at least he gave me a good recipe. Yeah, good there luck. Go. <laughs> 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 All right. Last question of the podcast. Uh, should perturbations, so to like knock someone off of balance or stability, be included to help regain quote unquote knee stability? Oh, God. Um, There's a lot there. So the easy answer to this is yes. The rehab answer to this is stop doing dumb stuff with your patients. Yeah. Um, what you'll see with this, let's attach five bands to an athlete and make it look like something out of a BDSM nightmare needs to stop. If you're going to do perturbation training, even if you look at some of the neuromuscular training studies, I think it's awesome. What they'll do sometimes is even having an athlete jump and just lightly body check them. Like, because it mimics what they're going to do in sport. And that should certainly be a part of it. If you take an athlete through the entirety of whatever rehab they're going through post-operative for a knee surgery and their sport is predicated on contact and they're not doing something to where there's some contact involved with it, then I would argue that's problematic. Yeah. yeah. Stop attaching bands to your patients and having them do stupid things. Yeah, that's yeah. the extent of what we'll do in our clinic. Um, because I'll often help Steph with some of her drills and I'll like 
be essentially holding a thera ball and just like hitting pa- patients while they're jumping in midair. So. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense to me. The other stuff I see on social media, I'm scratching my head wondering, like, where is the sports specificity here? But All right. I think that wraps up our uh, post-operative knee podcast. Uh, Derek's blog will be out soon on barbellmedicine.com, which will go into a lot more detail than we did today. But hopefully between these two options, you will find benefit from this. As usual, if you're dealing with knee-related symptoms and you're trying to return to activity and you need some help in that process, We are happy to do a remote consultation with you. Just go to barbellmedicine.com, click on the coaching tab, scroll down to pain and rehab and fill out our questionnaire, and then someone will be in contact with you for us to set up a Skype consult. Until next time, thanks for tuning in. Bet MGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at Bet MGM. Simply download the Bet MGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C.